Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. I'm Caleb Meyer. I'm Steven Stahoski. And I'm Larissa Whitaker. And today, I have a bit of a story to begin with. For those of you who tuned in to our community update episode last month, you may already be aware I kind of have an affinity for Pete Davidson and who in this cultural moment doesn't. And so when the Suicide Squad came out in August of 2021, I'd been excited to see it for months, as many people were. I went with my brother. It was excellent. We had a great time. I don't watch a lot of violent movies, so I needed like a three-hour buffer time afterwards to recalibrate back to reality. And I noticed in the weeks following, I was trying to live my life out in the world, and I could not get the mental image of Pete Davidson's face being missing from his face out of my mind. And so naturally, I turned to podcast interviews about James Gunn and did the research I could to understand and unstick this movie from me. And I'll turn it over to Ben because he had pointed out what we'll all notice as we dive in here, that though that was a very important encounter for me um, with James Gunn, it was not the first encounter with James Gunn. No, it was not uh, because as we started to dig through his uh, writing, directing, and producing credits, which uh, as we just discovered a few minutes ago, can be hilarious when you discover hamster PSA and just wonder what the hell that is. It was the <laughs> 90s. That's yeah. what it was. Yes. But there's also writing credits for the two live action Scooby-Doo films. And so that was mine. And then I think others first encounter with James Gunn if they didn't realize it because he exploded on the, to the scene for all of us for Guardians of the Galaxy. Obviously, also, we should say now, spoiler alert for probably anything that James Gunn has touched. Yes. As we're going to get into this conversation. And I say that because if you haven't seen the newest The Suicide Squad yet and you expected uh, Pete Davidson's Blackguard to survive, <laughs> I don't know what where you'd be coming from on that one. But today's conversation is about all things James Gunn, and we've got a range both in genre and in content level. And there's some interesting conversations that are going to come out of this, I suspect. Yes. One of the podcast interviews that I had visited with James Gunn um, was a 2021 interview with Happy, Sad, Confused, and it was, of course, to promote the Suicide Squad. Gunn reviewed his experiences in 2018, what it was like when he lost the Guardians 3 project, and along with it, he thought um, his career in Hollywood. And Gunn shared this reflection. He said, this is me being 100%, you know, as raw as I can be. I spent my whole life seeking fortune and fame. And I'm a creative guy. I love making movies and telling stories. But there was part of it I was using to fill a hole in me that didn't feel loved by other people. Either because I'm some strange place on the spectrum or because of my relationship with my parents or whatever, I never was able to experience feeling loved. And when that happened, and then for context for our listeners, and we'll dig into it more as the podcast continues, when James Gunn was quote-unquote canceled in the summer of 2018, now back to the quote from Gunn, and when that happened, I felt like everything in my life had been taken from me at one time. But in that moment, all of a sudden, all of these people loved me. And in a moment when I thought my career was over, I felt loved for the first time in my life, and it was an incredibly empowering experience. And this is the weirdest part. I thought I had lost everything, but I went to sleep pretty happy that night because I never knew people loved me, and I suddenly was able to experience that, and that affected everything afterwards. End quote from James Gunn. This is James Gunn, the Love Bomb Spectacular.
Gunn pointed out that that experience affected everything after, which was the writing and directing of the Suicide Squad. And as we investigated the stories he'd created prior to the 2021 film, The Suicide Squad, or The Suicide Squad, I don't know where we landed on that. Those themes are present in his work as early as the Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed film. That theme is also present in uh, Super, the movie that he directed where Ryan Wilson becomes a superhero. Because his wife leaves him. That's his whole impetus for becoming a superhero in that story. Oh, so it's that same theme oh. of feeling unloved. And so many of his works have the found family aspect. And we see this when comic book characters and cartoons come into live action. They sometimes get layers added on that are not there or are not a thread that was pulled on in their original version. And then whoever is the creator behind the script or behind the direction can put themselves into it in really interesting ways. And we have that with Scooby-Doo. <laughs> of all places. Yeah. Just because cause I remember, because I, I did not grow up with, like, as a child, I didn't have a great love of, of, of Scooby-Doo. So I remember watching the, the live-action films and being like, well, this is okay. Also, I think, I think I could appreciate those more as an adult just because there oh, are yeah. so many layers oh, of humor yeah. in there. <laughs> there, is, there was so much more to watching Scooby-Doo 2 this time with all of you guys than there ever was when it came out in 04. I was nine mm-hmm. or 10, yeah. nine or 10, yeah. give take. There's just, there were a lot of things that just kind of went over my head. And as we were watching the movie, I went, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I think I said that a lot. I also made the connection that Seth Green, whom we all love and adore for his various contributions to pop culture, is one of my favorite characters in Mass Effect. Mm-hmm. He, mm. he, voice, he plays Joker, which is the oh. pilot in Mass Effect, so... So you're, you're telling yeah. me you, you didn't grow up watching Scooby-Doo Cyber Chase, Ben? Oh, my uh, goodness. Is that what I'm hearing? Cyber that one was so scary. That one was actually kind of <laughs> terrifying. You, your childhood was lacking. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I had a VHS of like five or six of like the original run. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. Minor 49er, the Captain Redbeard. All the monsters that were in Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed, were on that original VHS of, of 1960s, 70s Scooby-Doo episodes that I had as a kid, which was also really funny to watch again. My mom likes to tell me, and I don't know how true this is, that this was my first experience of hipsterness, that I enjoyed Scooby-Doo before anybody else liked Scooby-Doo because she remembers trying to find Scooby-Doo things for me for birthdays or Christmas and being unable to. There's portraits of me taken at my fifth birthday with like a plush Scooby-Doo and my Scooby-Doo sweatshirt and little pigtails, just showing my appreciation from such a young age. And what I find fascinating about Gunn's work And though it was through the conduit of Pete Davidson's face missing his face, I think that there's something to note for when we're drawn to a piece of media, what within us is drawn to that and why it is sticky for us or why we return or why we become fans of things. And I think just as much as we can see James Gunn's theme, maybe not of his life, but this theme that has come through in a lot of his work that came to like front of mind for him with that experience in 2018, is something that was present in his work prior to then without him maybe consciously knowing that. And I think the same thing is true as a fan, that there's things that we like that we uh, don't know until we sit and reflect and introspect in a space like this to better understand why we like them and what within us is connecting there. I have two thoughts, and I can tie the one I had like three minutes ago together with one that springboards off of that exactly. And that's the fact that you can kind of see that the movie is geared towards teenagers and that we were all, when it first came out, kind of a little young for it. Mm. And you see that in the casting because they were pulling from actors and actresses 
who are well known for a lot of teenager driven horror elements whether it's Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Scream or I Know What You Did Last Summer you're pulling so many actors and actresses from that realm and in a piece that's geared towards teenagers and when it comes to this idea and this theme and, and the resonance with it the, the the how does this make me feel dealing with this experience of feeling unloved as a kid it might not be something that you deal with as a teenager it's absolutely something that you deal with and the movie being geared towards that teenage audience and that theme being a part of it is a perfect marriage. It also makes sense in the context of a coming-of-age story. Even as we see Mystery Inc. established in their careers, we're assuming all the adventures from the TV show and these other movies have already happened, they still sort of have this moment where they reflect on areas within themselves that they perceive to be lacking, that they have to integrate before they move forward to the end of the story. And I think that that's a big part of growing up and just moving through life is noticing these different parts of yourself that you either want to live with and maintain or let go. You could say that's true of the Guardians films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you absolutely can. Mm-hmm. Particularly, I think Rocket especially goes on to probably the longest journey. Uh, even though Peter's really the main character, Rocket's the one that grows up the most, quote-unquote, over the course of the Guardians He film. changes the most. He yeah. changes the most. I don't know if maybe growing up is the right <laughs> term for that, but he definitely changes the most. And when you get to him in... Infinity War and Endgame, he's very different and because of the way that James Gunn's Guardian films went. And that's just, yeah, that's, a, I mean. Well, the finale of Guardians 2 is, I think, the and we'll, and we'll maybe see this with Guardians 3 and also the holiday special that they're going to do for Guardians of the Galaxy. The end of Guardians 2, I think, is the emotional climax of the story of the team because you have Yondu's death and the emotional maturity and the journeys that everyone's gone on. That's also when Rocket is having his monologue that later when he, when he and Peter finally connect after, he, after he's talking about Yondu and then he goes, and when he stole batteries he didn't need. And then at that point Rocket's clearly talking about himself. Yes. And all of that happening and just, I mean that moment brings tears to your eyes between mm-hmm. Yondu's funeral and Craglin's reaction to it. The, the, the I mean just everything about that moment is amazing. And then it's interesting that when we get Rocket in the Avengers films after Infinity War and Endgame and in Endgame he's the only survivor it's him and Nebula who both feel incredibly alone incredibly isolated after everyone is apart from them and that kind of parallels what happened to James Gunn after he was canceled and after he no longer had the Guardians franchise himself this is one thing when where Disney snapped it away yeah and just you have <laughs> and this is something we've talked about and I think we're getting in it in the conversation a little later than we intended but if I may I'll, I'll kind of just rock and roll with it that the concept of getting cancelled is definitely something that has two different definitions depending on who you're listening to we're using the first definition which would be someone did something or said something that they probably shouldn't have and as a result were deplatformed or pulled off of whatever project they were working on and there was backlash etc it's not, oh, someone who disagrees with me is saying I should be pulled off or deplatformed or this and the other thing. It's definitely one of those terms that has gotten redefined by the right. That's not the context in which we're using it. Gunn had the Guardians franchise taken away from him after old tweets and... and that were I'll, inappropriate. I'll, inappropriate or as in referencing our experience from Bo Burnham inside, were vaguely <laughs> and probably shouldn't have been said but then came up and it was you can look back on it now and say hey this may have been an overreaction gun said some things he probably shouldn't have 
but everyone who's worked with him rallied around him. Like, that's where we see, and I think there's definitely some contrast between someone like Gunn and someone like Joss Whedon, where you have stories about abuse on set on everything from Justice League to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it's with that I would say, oh, who's the best ensemble writer and director of our era? My answer to that used to be Whedon. It's absolutely James Gunn. I think, yeah. I think now you, you've got to look at it and, and say that James Gunn has had just the fact that he had so many people rally around him and so many people were like, yeah, okay, you said something stupid. You really did. And they weren't in any way, shape, or form savory. You had that many people gather around you and you had that kind of community from someone who, and you know, he, he, you don't get that unless you've earned it kind of a deal. The cast of Guardians didn't want to move on without him. Like, mm-hmm. like that, it's like you just got Disney and Marvel to change their schedule. It's like no, 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 no. We are not making a Guardians three without James Gunn. We're gonna get him back and do it when he can do it. There's that old saying where you judge someone by their friends, mm-hmm. and the same thing applies to Gunn. You know, it does speak so well that everyone rallies around him like that. And if they're willing to take a hit to their careers for him. That says volumes about what kind of person he is. Because we don't know him personally. No. I assume. I assume no one at the <laughs> table knows him personally. No. He seems awesome. But I think you, you see it also in the way that he writes his scripts. I mean, going back to Scooby-Doo, what you were saying before, Larissa, that unlovedness that he felt in his statement from 2018, you can see that even in 2004 Scooby-Doo 2. And you can see that in, in a lot of the ways the characters kind of manifest through the movie. Yes, I agree. And I would like to point out a character who you wouldn't really think of initially in considering Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed, Old Man Wickles, who played the Black Knight Ghost. He has a line that is close to either touching on Gunn's ethos or explicitly stating the theme of the film. I'll toss it out there and we can debate. But when Shaggy and Scooby go to that club where all the villains hang out and a quick side story as well i was so into this movie in middle school that me and my best buddy maria leone now maria ward had nicknames during youth group and i was shizzy mccreepy and she was sd mccrawley and it was very fun (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) that's absolutely amazing oh i'm Respect level just keeps got, just keeps growing. I respected you to begin with, but now it just keeps getting higher Thank and higher. Thank you. The context here being that Stephen and Larissa met in person for the first time like eight to years ago. To watch this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. And so with that, I'll go back to the quote itself. It's something that said, at the club, Shizzy McCreepy, Shaggy, uh, goes up to Old Man Wickles to get information about the mystery they're trying to solve. And in response, Old Man Wickles says something to the effect of this. He says, listen, I'm not normally one for giving advice. But get out of this game while you got a chance. All of us here ain't nothing to admire. We needed people to believe we were different than we were, maybe because we believed there was something wrong with who we were in the first place. And Old Man Wickles also gets the best line in the movie, where he shouts that the darn bushes are yowling at him again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> darn bushes yowling And at you me again. give those lines to Peter Boyle, who oh, is an icon. Well, and you also have in the movie like the what parallels with that nicely, and you and you pointed this out. Like all of the members of the Scooby Gang kind of have to have that reach the lowest point to rediscover their love of themselves in that darkest moment, and that the only person on the team who already did it is Daphne. So as they're going through 
as the Scooby gang is going through what they're dealing with in the film and kind of rediscovering themselves, she points out when they're at the clubhouse that they used to solve mysteries for the love of it, not to prove anything to anyone. And when you're in that lowest point, you, you tune out the noise. You don't care what the audience is saying, what critics are saying, what anyone is saying about what you're doing. You're going to create and be who you are because that is when you're going to create some of your best work. And I can say that having seen what happened to James Gunn in 2018 and that the result of that is the Suicide Squad and Peacemaker, of which I've watched episode one, and oh my word, mm-hmm. even considering the Guardians films, he might be at the top of his game now. It's insane. And I think to tie in something I think you, Caleb, mentioned, and I know, Ben, you have as well, and possibly also you, Steven, so I don't want to discredit anybody here. <laughs> but what you pointed out about reaching that lowest point, I think it's important to note that they didn't reach that lowest point alone, that they had like this community of people around them or this found family that could rally. Because in the Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed story, so many of the characters, when they reach that lowest point, are brought back up through conversations with other members of Mystery Inc. It doesn't just happen on their own. You hear from particularly our parents' generation and older, the whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of a mentality. And you see it in movies too, where the main character hits low point and then by some weird outlandish power of their own will they pull themselves out of it they don't pull themselves up by their own bootstraps they they can't they need mystery ink it's because it is their family and that's what it's there for and on that note i'm actually going to bow out of this episode uh sorry dear listener so you can get to your actual family. so i can go and pick up my boys because <laughs> i have two wonderful sons and i have to go get them real quick and then i have to make dinner for my wife and my boys so thank Yay. you very much for having me i'm gonna bow out early and I will see you guys on the next episode. For me, the found family thing is like the entire ethos of maybe not the entirety of James Gunn's career, but pretty much everything Scooby-Doo 2, Onward, Guardians, Suicide Squad, because in Scooby-Doo, they already have that found family. Like they found each other. And like you said, in, in the second one, they use that as their support group to, you know, when they're feeling low, they have each other's backs. Guardians 1 is all about finding each other. And then Guardians 2 is all about them actually becoming a family. And for most of those characters, like Drax lost his family. They were murdered. Uh, Gamora and Nebula never really had one. Well, they had ones to begin with, but then were stolen by Thanos. And so they also find each other. Like, they're all people who lost their families or never had one to begin with. And they come and create this this motley one together. Mm-hmm. And it's such a beautiful thing. That's why I always cry at the end of Guardians 2. Oh, yeah. <sighs> And the 2021 too. Yeah. Yeah. The Suicide Squad does it as well. I have to give, this is something we just talked about. If it isn't obvious, we're recording the January community update and this James Gunn conversation on the exact same day, which is why we had Steven for half a session. We actually had him for one and a half sessions. (laughs) Uh, And in that conversation, when we got to d and I, I remember I mentioned, there's nothing wrong with tropes if you do them well. And James Gunn, is a master at writing the five band band because you have the leader, the lancer, the heart, the big guy, and the smart guy. And those are explained wonderfully uh, by Red of Trope Talk, and I would highly recommend seeking that out. I will give you the short version. Basically, team leader is exactly what it sounds like, the person that you kind of think of as the story's main character and the person who has probably the, the position of supremacy on the movie poster. Uh, if we're talking about Guardians, it's obviously Peter Quill, Star-Lord. It's a little less obvious with Suicide Squad and Scooby-Doo because we kind of think of everyone on those teams as, as a little bit more equals. But then the Lancer is kind of a foil to the leader. They're going to have tension. They're going to bounce off of each other in interesting ways. 
in the case of Guardians, they might have a romantic dynamic because if it's if Peter Quill, Star Lord is our is our leader, the Lancer is Gamora. In Scooby Doo, they might have a romantic element. because uh, it'd be Fred and Daphne, wouldn't it? Actually, the way I I'd I'd put it as for Scooby Doo, I'd put it as Fred and Shaggy because it's kind of oh. the the stand up leader, cool okay. guy, and then the complete slacker. But you need both of them for your team to be successful. It's interesting. I almost feel like you could even say it's Fred and Velma, even though that pulls her out of another, because they butt heads in the first Scooby-Doo live-action mm-hmm. film. Yes. Well, and, and ideally, and this is the other thing, like, like, and this is the other thing about tropes, you're never going to fit them perfectly. Mm. Because as you have roles like the heart, the emotional center of the team, or the big guy or the smart guy, things are going to move around. Kind of fleshing out each of the, the teams, because at least the way I saw it with Scooby-Doo was your leader is Fred, your Lancer is Shaggy, your heart is obviously Scooby, your big guy is Daphne because she's the best fighter. Thank you, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes. And your smart guy is, of course, Velma. If you go all the way back to, or I already did go all the way back. If you go to Guardians, your leader is Star-Lord, your Lancer is Gamora, your smart guy is Rocket, your heart is Groot, and your big guy is Drax. That one works almost perfectly. And then with Suicide Squad, they've got a few more people and sometimes you do have like the sixth ranger or other or the wizard or like other elements of a team sometimes uh in addition to the five-man band but you have the leader is Bloodsport, the lancer is peacemaker the heart is Ratcatcher 2 the big guy is king shark <laughs> and now eh? yep yeah the smart and then that, the smart guy is well the smart guy is rick flag the team or who is tactically but then there's also, again, you could say, oh, well, he might be the team leader, and then Bloodsport for all of his weapons is a spark. I mean, again, everybody's going to move around. It's not always going to work perfectly. But it's a great way to think about your team dynamics. And all of these groups, whether they are from Marvel or from DC or from cartoons, can have so many emotional layers to them when written well. And James Gunn has been doing that, given we go from 04 to the mid-2010s to 2021 Suicide Squad. He's for nearly been two decades. Through, yeah. Across three different decades. And still going, because he's got more Guardians projects in the works, and I hope he comes back to Suicide Squad, because he's Mm. been doing amazing things with Peacemaker. I've only watched episode one, but it was nuts. As we talk about the dynamics of the team, is there a way for us to lean in and explore how those dynamics shift, or if there's particular characters we're drawn to within the different franchises? I'll actually pull from a point I made in one of our blogs, because I think it's relevant here. Captain Boomerang dies in the first 10 minutes of the movie. And we've had so much fun with that character and he pops up in so many other pieces of media. And whether it's the comics or like animated Suicide Squad films and content, Boomerang and a Suicide Squad story, you can do so much with him. And I feel like both movies failed to do that. That was why that was my biggest disappointment was him dying in the first 10 minutes. And when I wrote up a blog post about the new movie, because I loved basically everything else about it, the question I just asked was, whose story is the director interested in telling? And that tells you a lot. Because you can look at the Suicide Squad and the fact that the emotional heart of the team is Ratcatcher 2. And thanks to her relationship with her father, she also has one of the, the one of the, the thesis statements of the film. If even the lowest creatures among us have value, so too do we. And that is a wonderful message coming out of, again, that low point where Gunn found himself after getting canceled. And in Guardians, it's Rocket. And we can definitely talk more about how his journey progresses and he's kind of (laughs) when rocket raccoon is the director putting his himself and his emotional journey into the movie. Oh my word. And then in the case of Scooby-Doo, it's again, that finding 
the value in yourself as you are. And it, and the fact that he makes it both Daphne's journey in the first film and then everyone else's in the second film, but it's who he decided to focus on and when, and that's the idea that shines through the most. It's finding that value in yourself, but it's also finding the people who see your value, especially Ooh. in Scooby-Doo, but also mm-hmm. in Guardians and the Suicide Squad, because yeah. it's a team dynamic. So you have to have the people that surround you also value and appreciate you. And in Suicide Squad, you could argue it's getting, you know, more than just your team to value you. It's getting the government and, you know, the people in general to value and respect the lowest of the low. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to pause for a moment because I just thought to myself between the four of us that are in the studio space and John out there, it's like leader, lancer, big guy, heart, smart guy. <laughs> I mean, given John... classify me as big guy just because of my courage, I'm going to punch you. I was... <laughs> I was, was going to say you're the smart guy. Yeah, because you're running the equipment right now. Yeah, results will vary. And then you and I are each other's leader lancer. That's been the dynamic since the beginning, and it works well. Oh, my gosh. And, and then and then I would argue we added big guy heart. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Oh, gosh. Anyway, total tangent. No, no I think that's worth keeping as a part of the conversation, if you'd be open to it. Because if we're talking about the narrative of seeing ourselves in stories or seeing that reflected, if you look at the team, especially as we've recently adjusted and changed Ad and Grown, how is that something that's playing here? Especially with it being the five-man band and five people. Yeah, five of us in John's basement today, and you can definitely see moments where all of us have leader, lancer, big guy, spark guy, heart dynamics. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I like that point you read up earlier of, finding things in media that like you gravitate towards or it appeals to you and I feel like at least for me I don't do this consciously it's a lot of subconscious stuff but like I tend to look for things in media that I feel like I lack in my own life so especially for Gunn you know if he felt that he wasn't loved maybe that's why so many of his pieces of media are about that and about finding a support group so I'd be interested to see where his career goes from here Yeah, because if he does feel secure and loved, which he never had before, maybe his does, media will change a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, That's yeah. an interesting question. Yeah, absolutely. I want to pick up on that, but I'm also going to, <laughs> with great joy, kind of point out the fact that it's like, oh, the found family element and then like the finding the people you can be yourself around. And then the fact that the first team that came to my mind was ours. I enjoy our team immensely and wish Steven was here to say that or to hear that, but he will uh, he'll hear the episode later. <laughs> <laughs> and just, yeah, it, it's it's an interesting evolution because you do see, like, I'm trying to think of a good contrast. And of course, this guy is the first director coming to my mind. Like, someone like Mel Brooks <laughs> is ultimately going to like, oh, that's a genre that we haven't. Or how do you put it? That's a genre I haven't ruined yet when he made Spaceballs. And it's like, oh, I haven't done sci-fi. I've done Western. I've done horror. Here we go. And, but you have an evolution with Gunn and just seeing he was writing a message based on where he kind of felt stuck in previous pieces of work. And we saw that with the Scooby-Doo films and the Guardians films to this point. And then after getting canceled and doing the Suicide Squad, okay, now we're moving in another direction. We see it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing. It's like is it, the director is telling the story that is also pulled from their own experience, which, I mean, it's just like mm. it, it's a cycle at that point. Is What's that? Uh, art imitates life and mm-hmm. life imitates art? Yep. Mm-hmm. 
That's absolutely that's absolutely the case because he surrounded himself with people uh, like again, I'm just thinking of the Guardians cast, like Zoe Saldana, like Chris Pratt, Dave Bautista. I mean, people who rallied around him after the can- after he was canceled. And yeah, it's just you're going to do your best when you write what you know. And if that's the emotional experience that Gunn has had to this point, it is a well that he can go back to again in the context of different universes and still have it resonate so well with an audience. He's tapping into something there because this is something I've heard. Well, you already referenced the, the nicknames from youth group. I mean, I, <laughs> I know, I know something I heard. Well, I know something I heard growing up and going through my own life in ministry was that our culture suffers from a spectacular lack of love, including love of self. And that's very true and revealed well in James Gunn's movies, which you might not think of it with something as R-rated as the most recent Suicide Squad film, hits that theme in the same way you might hear it in the context of like a religious homily. Well, I think there's <laughs> I something... I can't believe I just made that comparison, but no, that's where we are. I think that's fair. If I remember correctly from my deep dive of James Gunn interviews on that shelf that has since been cleared out and refilled with other things, uh, he is Catholic, a practicing Catholic still currently. Creators and directors especially, I think a lot of times use the stories and the media they produce to deal with their own trauma. Um you brought up Mel Brooks earlier. I don't know why this is the comparison we keep going to, but he specifically, he's Jewish, if you don't know, and he specifically satirizes and makes extreme fun of Nazis in a vast majority of his work because that's the way he processes and deals with the generational trauma left over from it. And you could argue that James Gunn does the same thing in his movies where if he felt sort of like an outsider, especially... You know, you can look back at some of the stuff he said and did when he was younger. He was sort of an edgy... In his media, all most of his characters, especially all the ones we've talked about today, are outsiders. They come together. They don't feel alone by the end of the movies. So you can see that's him processing through that in the stuff he makes. And I think we do that as an audience. Because what I find so fascinating about connecting with different themes and media, whether it's James Gunn or other creators out there is that when there's a story and I connect with whatever is happening on screen, however abstractly, there's such a community of people that had to come together to make that thing happen in the way it happened and was produced for me to be watching here. And then for me to have seen it, there are all these other people who would have had to have also seen it and appreciated it. Because I'll admit that I don't do a good job of exploring things beyond what is close to mainstream. And so I would think that there would need to be at least a community of people who would engage with this in a meaningful way. And what I find so interesting about media in general is that opportunity to explore things we maybe don't talk about in our day-to-day conversations with other people. Um, but have this indirect way of addressing and working through and sharing together as an audience when we go to the movies. Especially through the vehicle of superhero movies, which is like currently that is the most mainstream like cookie cutter thing you can do is make a superhero movie. But yeah, it's so cool that he can take something that at its surface value is just about good guys punching bad guys and tell these really interesting character driven trauma dealing with stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and just and the fact that he got so much, he's gotten so much mileage out of it, and he used his second installments to double down mm-hmm. because it's Daphne's story arc in the first Scooby Doo film, but then it's everyone else kind of having that same. 
moment in Scooby-Doo 2. The other element of that would be in the first Guardians film, it's kind of everyone else having their found family. And you see that with Quill going from, we see him orphaned and alone, and then having the Guardians surrounding him. Likewise, Gamora going from the side of Ronan and Thanos and Drax going through the entire movie in revenge mode and then mm-hmm. having a family at the end and Groot giving of his own life to save the team. Mm. And then in the same way that Daphne was ahead of everyone else in the first film, Rocket and Nebula are delayed. They don't go through that story arc or complete it until the end of the second installments. And they go through again, the finding of the found family and the people who know you and love you for you are who you want to have in your immediate orbit. Well, and that same thing applies to the Suicide Squad movie because Harley Quinn and Rick Flagg were in the first one. Whatever your thoughts on the first one are, they already had a journey of getting to know other people and care about them. Mm-hmm. And you can see that yeah. in the second one because they immediately, you know, when they get together, they care about each other again. But yeah, Bloodsport and Ratcatcher and Polka Dot Man and all of them kind of have to learn that over the course of the film. Yeah. Well, and the, and the fact that the second film does what, the bar scene in the first Suicide Squad film was trying to do. Yes. I, I, again, and I think, I, yeah, I did bring this up when we did our community update. And again, in podcast time, these episodes are separated by a month. In real time, we recorded the other one an hour ago. That tension between studio and commercial ad- ad viability and vision of creator. We also definitely hit on this when we were talking about Zack Snyder <laughs> and looking just at the DC landscape of everything. And the fact that Gunn largely had full creative control out of everything he got to do with the Suicide Squad, and it shows it, just from the how much he got to do, got to experiment, the fact that the soundtrack is maybe even more off the wall than the Guardians films. I mean, there is so much there that it feels like Gunn kind of reached his end of second act dark night of the soul moment and came out of it on the other side and even stronger and and, and again speaking in those superhero film terms that's why i'm excited to see what he does next because he's in his third act where he loves himself and feels like he's loved and that's such a good place to be Uh, you want people to be there so yeah i'm super excited to see whatever he makes next where do we want to go next i would like to actually circle back to the discussion of daphne's arc Because I'm curious to say, I would say her journey between the first Scooby-Doo movie, from what I remember of it, compared to the second Scooby-Doo movie, is different from that of the other characters. Because while the other characters might have to shift slightly in how they perceive themselves, Daphne actually chooses to change something about her fundamentally in order to integrate and feel comfortable with herself. After being the damsel in distress throughout the series, and this character that was diminished or not given much to do, she went out of her way to go and train to become all tough and badass and unstoppable, and more like the Buffy that we know, before she was able to be invited into seeing herself as valuable. Which is still a similar journey for each character, but I think it's important to note that distinction for her. Because I think Daphne is one of the characters I connect with most out of the Scooby gang. Not in that particular way. So I think it's interesting to see the way that she journeys with her identifying in her girlishness. My point is that I think Daphne is prepared to serve as a guide to the other characters in the second film because her journey may have been a little bit more arduous to arrive at the same place. Not emotionally, but in how she had to engage with her environment and the steps she had to take to arrive to where she is now. I think that's super important too because 
from what I remember in both films, it's never brought up that, like, it's never addressed that she changed fundamentally who she is. In fact, I think the characters make fun of her for it in the first one, where they're like, oh, there's, you're always the damsel in distress. Like, it doesn't matter if you can do kung fu or whatever now. Mm -hmm. And in the second movie, because I forget, doesn't the reporter call her out? In the beginning, and she's like, oh, you're just the pretty face or whatever. So, like, clearly, people haven't accepted that she is who she is now. So maybe that's a shortcoming of the film, that it never does, you know, get into that and address that. Daphne's used in an interesting way in the second movie because she's also, like, she temporarily at least forgets her own lesson because she tries to help. Velma when she's trying to go on a date with Patrick, Seth Green's character, and puts on this absurd jumpsuit and has changed her hairstyle, isn't wearing her glasses, is taking (gasps) Daphne's advice, and ultimately they have to circle back and it's like, wait a minute, no, you you have to figure out the same thing that I did. Like, your nerdiness, your intelligence, everything about you that is authentic to you is why Patrick is going to love you in the first place, and that's why we do. Ben, you've cracked me open because I think that what you pointed out there about Daphne giving Velma the advice specifically that she has to change something about herself before she can be accepted or liked or loved by another person reflects Daphne's journey. She had to change something fundamentally about herself before she could move forward. And so even though she offers statements of encouragement, I am circling back to almost changing my initial opinion on how the story is structured and how these characters are guided to those points. Because it may not be that Daphne has arrived to this place where she understands things about herself and other people. She knows the value of accepting herself and doing what's necessary to get to that space. But it wasn't as simple as going on an internal, introspective, emotional journey for her. She had to do something in the external environment. And maybe that wasn't true. Maybe that is, like you pointed out, Caleb, just an area where the writing is lacking. If we're looking for themes that could be universal guides or anything like that. But it does make more sense that that's why she advised Velma in the way she did. And it didn't end up paying off in the story. Well, I'm going to put my theory hat on for a second. Because I'm pretty sure this is the first like major... A production company telling him what to do because Scooby-Doo, you know, wasn't his. It's owned by a company and they want to keep their brand a certain way. And he's not that far removed from Hamster PSA if this is 2004 and that was 1997. So maybe there's a bit of he had to change stuff about himself in order to be the director for this movie. Like he was told you can do this, you can't do that. So maybe maybe that was intentionally written in there. We always have IMDb queued up when we're recording our episodes. And the Scooby-Doo films are, I think I think it's fair to say, the, the first largest writing credit of Gunn's career uh, in, in that section. And you have, if I may pull another gem from the James Gunn, the Suicide Squad promotion media tour. Mm. He, John Cena and Margot Robbie went on Jimmy Kimmel. I love that interview. And it was hosted by Anthony Anderson, mm. who went way back to the Scooby-Doo era of James Gunn's career when it's like, He's writing and Anderson is helping with the auditions and Anderson was about to do Kangaroo Jack. I mean, it was it was the weird comedy with CGI animal getting our careers started era for both of those guys. <laughs> but you have to what extent. OK, now we have the Suicide Squad all these years later. It's the same interview where John Cena, who was a cardboard cutout in the 
college boyfriend of Margot Robbie's. So she like said for two years when she'd fall asleep, she'd like see a silhouette. And it's like, oh, it's just John Cena. Okay, we're okay. And then John Cena was presented with a cardboard cutout of Margot Robbie in the Harley Quinn getup. Also, as he did for most of the, if not all of his Peacemaker media stuff, John Cena is in costume. Like if you haven't seen the interview, go back and watch it. It's amazing. But just the extent to which this is a story that James Gunn has continued to tell and interpret in different ways and not get too far from himself. He is taking his own advice. He's realized I'm at my best when I'm authentic to who I am. And this is a struggle that I have had. This is a story that I can tell in interesting ways. And it is working consistently. It is going to be really weird to see where the Guardians go next because you have the characters and the director are in the same place. They've learned this lesson. Where do you go from here and what story do you tell? I would argue that Rocket isn't in that same place. I think that he's at the beginning of learning. Like, I think the end of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is Rocket finally having that light bulb moment to open up to the possibility of believing this about himself. And Gunn, in his interviews, has talked and talked about how Rocket is, like, the central character for him. He says, he's my guy or he's my boy. I can't remember what the line is. But something about how deeply he appreciates Rocket. So I think we won't necessarily see Gunn my prediction is that we won't see Gunn deviate from this theme, but we're going to see him take his third act journey and have that lived through Rocket as well. Because I don't think he's fully there yet. He's at the beginning of that story for himself. And I don't know enough about... I'm, I've always been more of a DC guy than a Marvel guy. Anytime we're talking about comics, I always have to say that. And... I don't know enough about Adam Warlock, who supposedly is going to be one of the main characters or antagonists. He's going to be the rock that's going to come in and knock the Guardians out of their gravitational pull, kind of similar to how Ego did in the second one. And you have an interesting opportunity with the fact that, and this says a lot, again, I think about just to what extent, maybe how quickly Disney and Marvel learned the lesson of the best person to write these characters for your company right now is James Gunn in that they didn't move the needle too much with them in infinity war and Endgame. They like, they were kind of a case of, at least in those films, the characters serving the plot as opposed to the plot serving the characters. We didn't learn like Gamora was used to help tell Thanos story Mm. or the fact that the guardians died then serves as motivation and impetus for, everything that Nebula and, and and Rocket get into in Endgame. But we're mostly seeing them where they left off at the end of Guardians 2. And the only change in that status quo post-Endgame is that it's a different Gamora. So, like, that's really the most significant different plot thread that James Gunn's going to have to pull on when we get to the holiday special and the third film. So with this being the James Gunn Love Bomb Spectacular, let's close with some of the things we love about work James Gunn, or excuse me, let's close with some of the things we love about things James Gunn has made, written, directed, or in any way been involved in. His character interaction and dialogue, I think, is so well written. Just the, I mean, yes, uh, it's that Marvel quippiness, but it's kind of like the final form of that Marvel quippiness. I think back to the prison scene in the first Guardians movie. I love that scene so much because it, it it's the first time they're all together and it gives them such good characterization. Like, 
you know, the rest of the team is making a plan and Groot sees something shiny and just goes and takes it as soon as Rocket's <laughs> like, I need that thing. Groot just goes, gets it for him. Uh, or we can just take it first and improvise. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, Drax just like bull rushes people and deal with his problems head on. Peter is like trying to solve the problem, but he's still having a good time and trying to flirt with Gamora the whole time while he's doing it. Steals the guy's leg. <laughs> oh, but he convinces the guy to give no, him his leg. No, he pays so you, him for yeah, it. Yeah, he pays him. So you learn that he doesn't immediately resort to violence. Like he can solve problems oh. through other means. And that's also a time where what we might think of as the, going back to the tropes here and, and the five-man band, that their places in the team maybe weren't quite as solidified. You could definitely make an argument that in terms of to what extent they know what the stakes are and are going to make the best decision. like Or just who in this plot line is the least idiot and it's Gamora. So she's the smart guy coming into that scenario. And Rocket sending Peter to get a leg that he doesn't actually need <laughs> is the most Lancer move I can possibly imagine. It's like, you think you're the leader of this team. I'm going to have you go do this thing that's not going to affect my plan in any way whatsoever while I go through and execute this. And then again, it's and it's also James Gunn like using... Like the fact that what you just described, I, I went to my, in my brain to that exact same moment because it's a long shot. The fact that they hold and we watch Groot moving the whole time <laughs> and Noah's rocking to describing this. It's like, it's about to go off the rails in three, two, one, click. Mm. Device gets stolen, alarm goes off, and everything descends into chaos. Uh, I love that the music in all the Guardians movies is diegetic. It takes place in the actual universe. It's the two cassette tapes for the first one, volume one, and then volume two. And then in the third one, I assume it's going to be that Zune <laughs> that he got at the end of the second <laughs> one, Earth listening which gives now. him access to tons more types of music. So I think I just thought that was a really clever idea to like actually give your soundtrack a place in the movie. Also gifts that James Gunn has given the universe. And I can reference, uh, as we did in the last episode, the D&D campaign that we're playing together. Uh, that he gave us parts wonderfully played by his brother Sean, and just I love like, Craglin. Craglin is phenomenal for such a like as far as like he might be one of the best side characters in the entire MCU, and just the, the things he gets to do and say and how he interacts with the leads, because I just used the Craglin voice for an NPC in our most recent. Uh, D and D session, and I loved him. The party was taken with him in ways that I was not expecting. <laughs> oh my gosh! I love. I'm assuming that he and Michael Rooker are good buddies because I'm checking IMDb, and Michael Rooker is in most of James Gunn's movies. He goes back to Slither, his first yep. movie. He's in Super, The Guardians, and then the new Suicide Squad. So, Michael yep. Rooker is just fun. His collaboration with Michael Rooker. Uh, has been the gift that keeps on giving because of just how amazing of a character Yondu is. Yes. And just to what extent he might be the emotional heart of Guardians too. And Mary Poppins, so... y'all. Yep. <laughs> oh, gosh. Everything about his sacrifice and, and the story that they tell there. And he was at Indiana Comic Con a number of years back. He did his Q&A as opposed to standing up at a ta or sitting up at a table on a stage in front of everyone and answering questions in an orderly fashion from people at the microphones. He just went around the room. Rooker left oh. the stage, walked around. People who had lined up, he just go person to person to person to person. He probably answered like over a hundred questions in the space of the hour that we had with him. Uh, and including one that he probably shouldn't have answered because he was asked if he would reprise his part as Yondu 
for Marvel's What If series, which has since uh, come out. And his response to that question in like 2019 was, yeah, we already filmed it. <laughs> something, something breach of contract. <laughs> Although I think if Disney came to him with that, his response would just be, boggly bog, boggly 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 bog. Anyway. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So just and th- that's another thing where, as you said, judge them by their friends. The actors who are friends with James Gunn are coming back and getting amazing parts and moments and dialogue and just everything that they get to do. I mean, I can't remember who said it recently, but I saw an interview where someone just said 90 or I think it was knowing us. It was probably a YouTube video essay that (laughs) talked about how 90 percent of directing is casting and just having these incredibly talented people in your back pocket in the sense that their numbers are on your phone and you can reach out to them and say, hey, I'm doing this thing, you win. And their answer is going to be yes. You get to partner with them and create these amazing stories. It's just, it's one of those things where maybe the happiest thing to come out of this is the fact that, think about what James Gunn has already given us and we haven't maybe seen the best of it yet. Ooh. If he is kind of coming into himself in in this third act in a sense after getting canceled really excited for what's coming next the main point of this episode is they should make a scooby-doo three <laughs> i would see it i would like a where are they now keep all the same original cast oh yeah no bring everybody back <laughs> i don't know what it will look or sound like yet but after ghostbusters afterlife after spider-man no way home i know at some point we're going to do an episode on legacy sequels that would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> a uh, yeah. James Gunn written Scooby-Doo And directed, because he didn't direct the first two. No, he did not. Oh, my gosh. May I share an item I love from James Gunn? Go for yes. it. Yes. I love the line in Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed when they're in the back of the mystery machine, racing away from the pterodactyl ghost, and Shaggy's helping Velma with the big, like, the MacGuffin of the story. And Shaggy says... This is tied for the most terrifying day of my life. And she says, tied with what? And he says, every other freaking day of my life. (laughs) (laughs) And Matthew Lillard's delivery on that, you believe every word of it. (laughs) I enjoy it so much. I think there's so much character in his stories. I wish I had more to add in specifics. I love the little moment. And I have a lot of nostalgia for Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed, if it hasn't become clear yet. When Scooby holds up the notepad... And Shaggy says, Scooby, I don't remember what the exact line says, Scooby, what's your decision? And he holds up the notepad and he hops it around and he says, bunny. And all Scooby has done the whole time is drawn an image of a bunny. And I like that. I like that that's his contribution. Writing a good ensemble cast is not just writing your group of five or your group of seven or your group of nine or, or however many. It's also being able to write the pairings and the trios and the different combinations well. And the fact that Shaggy and Scooby play off each other as well as they do, the fact that you have so many amazing dynamics, and like, like the fact that we fall in love with Rocket and Groot from the first time that we see them, and it's a CGI raccoon talking to a CGI tree, and it's perfection. Yes. Or the back and forth, just uh, the rivalry between John Cena's Peacemaker and Idris Elba's Bloodsport in the new Suicide Squad, or the back and forth between... Polka Dot Man and Harley Quinn when Harley has no idea that Milton the van driver has accompanied them all the way to Jotunheim and then has been gunned down. And Polka Dot Man is just so mad at the fact that she clearly doesn't even know that he exists. I love her. Oh, oh, gosh. And then she thinks Bloodsport is Milton after that. Yep. (laughs) My favorite Harley moment 
I have two favorite Harley moments from the Suicide Squad. I love the fact that she refers to them as birdies. I enjoy that. I have pet birds. They are my birdies as well. Mm. The other thing that I love is when she's carrying the javelin. And I don't remember who it was. It might have been Rick Flagg who asked her, what's that and what's that for? And she said, just calmly says, I'm waiting for God to tell me. as <laughs> She goes throughout the story. Because I just, I think that that is such a charming character moment for her. And I know another thing that I love about Gunn's work from the directorial side is how colorful so many of his movies are. That's my favorite. One of my favorite things about Guardians Volume 2 is how saturated the colors are. And I think it gives a lot of room for play with this being such a big, big story, big sets, big characters with the ridiculousness of a cute talking raccoon having the depth of character. There's a line from one of Gunn's interviews that I think captures a lot of my personal tastes in stories. And he says, I love getting depth to that goofy stuff. And I just enjoy that there's such a merriment of those two things. And that's there. like a thesis statement for his work. Mm-hmm. Although that and that depth, especially given we're talking about Guardians 2 and that's pre-cancellation and that's pre-discovery of self-love for Gunn in a lot of ways. Like, I still remember seeing Guardians 2 for the first time and you have that beautiful set piece when they first arrive on Ego's planet and it's set to My Sweet Lord and it's, just, and it's this prolonged sequence with all of these CGI bubbles and animals and it's just, it's, it's, it's beautiful, it's colorful. It's, it answers a criticism that a lot of people have about the MCU that the color palettes are too standardized. And, and DC. Yeah. Because DC is also, most oh. of those movies are pretty dark. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, so, so Not in, just in color. No. <laughs> so Gunn does an amazing job with that. But it also is kind of telling because I remember thinking to myself, and again, this is me coming in with way more knowledge of DC than Marvel. I know nothing about Ego going in. And it's like, we're meeting this character too early. We're coming to this place too early. This isn't going to go well. So like, there's just, just, just by the timing, there's something sinister beneath the surface. And the fact that that colorfulness and that paternal relationship is so counterfeit Mm. And that the love and the authenticity comes from the found family. It comes yes. from Yandu, not from ego. Again, it just is writing what you know in that thesis statement to all these pieces that we've been talking about that James Gunn does so well. If anyone had told me a year ago when we let off the first, when we let off season two with an episode about Blues Brothers, which is a film that will always be close to my heart and has been since I was a child, that we would get this much mileage talking about the Scooby-Doo live-action films, I would have said, <laughs> yeah, right. But I am so glad we have done this deep dive on these movies. There's so much good content to pull from. And they've, even despite, like, early 2000s CGI, they've aged well. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It was so fun to go back and watch that. The soundtrack's great, too. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. After one of the songs ends, it's like, thank you for listening. This next track will be Move Along by the All-American Rejects. <laughs> <laughs> And suddenly we're all 10 years old again. (laughs) Final, final love bomb circle. Okay, we're going to say the one last thing we'd like to share that we love about James Gunn. Given that we spent the majority of our time when it comes to Gunn's catalog talking about the Scooby-Doo films, again, of the early 2000 aughts, the Guardians films of MCU fame, and then uh, his most recent work on The Suicide Squad and Peacemaker, I can appreciate just to what extent we've seen James Gunn's growth like he's telling stories he knows how to tell well and he's getting better at it like that's what's really so exciting about him right now as a creator and 
you also have just to what extent I've been thinking about Ghostbusters a lot lately, ever since Ghostbusters Afterlife came out, and I've been consuming a lot of Ghostbusters related media in the meantime. And everybody, when they talk about Harold Ramis, they just talk about the fact that he's a brilliant comedian, writer, actor, and director. It's rare that you get four. But I would say that James Gunn is a brilliant writer, director, creator, just in so many ways. He's another unique talent that has given and is still giving that I really want to see and follow for the next as many years as he's creating. For me, it's it's got to be the way he writes his characters and the way they interact with each other. They feel like not only real people, but they feel like they're actually friends and they have real relationships. You know, you and your friends don't always get along. So sometimes you butt heads and sometimes you snipe at each other and stuff. But you get past that, and then, you know, five minutes later, you're joking and laughing with each other and crying with each other, and you're there to support each other when you're down in your low moments. You're there to celebrate together when you have your big highs and your exciting moments, and I love that. I love seeing, you know, genuine, real relationships in my media. This was so fun. Thank you, guys. And to cheat a little, I'm just going to quote Gunn himself. I love getting death to that goofy stuff. Oh, 
Play the Wild Rover from the Ragtag Bunch live at the Tiger Room. You can find that album on Spotify and find the Ragtag Bunch on Facebook, where you can get updates on shows and events. Our connection to the Ragtag Bunch comes through Storytelling Breakdown host Steven Stahovsky. For our spotlight this episode, we're going to hear from Steve Mullaney. I first met Steve during his junior year at the University of St. Francis in Fort Wayne. He's interning with me now at 89.1 WBOI, which is why I should probably say we're recording this on a weekend in our free time. Steve is at school. I'm at my home office. Steve Mullaney, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you and I are going to spend a little time on the spotlight talking about baseball. Uh, you're not the first Cubs fan we've had on the podcast, uh, or even the first Cubs fan with a WBOI affiliation. I, I do want to mention uh, something I recommended to you. We had uh, Rob Martinez, who hosts the Movie Music Spotlight uh, on WBOI, and he talked about Blues Brothers, but his framing device for that spotlight was the Cubs. So you can find his Blues Brothers spotlight in our episode, Fake Doctors, Real Dramedies. He starts his spotlight right around the hour and a half mark, uh, specifically one hour, 29 minutes, and 38 seconds, to be precise. Anyway, you and I have more recent sports rooting interests. We're both in our 20s, but then... Everyone gets into their sports in different ways for different reasons. How long have you been following the Cubs and what got you into the Cubs and baseball in general? Well, the main reason is my dad. He was a Cubs fan growing up. He always told me that he would come home from school because he lived near Chicago. That's right when the Cubs games would be on is during that hour. So he would go home and watch then. So he's been a part of the history since then. To many, this would seem like a bandwagon thing, but I did start following them in 2015, which is right when they started getting good. But that's definitely a coincidence. I liked sports growing up, but never really insane about too many. I liked watching Notre Dame football because I'm from South Bend. Notre Dame basketball, too. There are a couple seasons I remember, a couple couple players I remember. But when it comes to professional sports, that's kind of when it started. I just remember in 2014 or so, I wanted to just start learning more about sports and I remember I followed that Notre Dame season pretty closely and 2015 came around and that's when baseball season started so I was like oh I'll just you know my dad's been a big fan I I went to one game I think when I was younger and I want to say 2011 but I'm not really sure exactly and I just started learning players names and learning the stories behind all of them and I mean that's when all those rookies came up that year so just every single player on the team was just had such a unique backstory and I knew a little bit about the Cubs history. I watched there was a documentary, I don't know exactly, I think it was ESPN, but the documentary that came out sometime in that decade about the Steve Bartman play. And I remember watching that before I was even a Cubs fan. I just it obviously it's an interesting crazy scenario, but all that story just kind of tied in together. All the baseball experience I had was one or two years of Little League. I didn't know much. I think I probably got one hit even after this past season and the all the seasons before that, you know, in that in this period that I've been a really big fan. I'm not like, oh, they're not good anymore. I'm not going to watch. But it's been an interesting ride. I think this is a lot of things, too, with younger fans is, I mean, a team being good is definitely a big reason to start watching them and following them. When your first, like, year of experience watching them is with a really good team, it can kind of Kind of a false sense of expectations. Yeah, yeah. 
you watch this really good team, and then if somebody does average, which is normal, you're like, man, they're really sucking. But in reality, you know, and that average play on a team that's not as good is is really good and appreciated. And now that I've gone through like this whole era with the core coming up and then being traded, it's like you just learn how the sport works and how that it's just a big transition. And this is the first time in my Cubs history, you know, it'll last my lifetime, but this is the first time that I've just had all those stars traded away at once. And it was just like, man. Yeah, that's jarring. I know I don't have the background or the intensity of rooting interest to probably call myself a Cubs fan or probably a fan of any major league baseball team. For me, I, I, I my story is similar to yours and influence from my dad growing up watching baseball, playing it at the little league level. And now I think we kind of focus on teams that are Northern Indiana adjacent. I, I know my dad grew up a Tigers fan, but we also enjoy rooting for the White Sox because we really uh, like their uh, announcers, uh, Steve Stone and Jason Benetti. Mm-hmm. And those two teams were in the same division. So there's going to maybe be yeah. some animosity between those fan bases. Likewise, we're in fairly close proximity to the Reds. It was cool to see the Bengals in the Super Bowl, but then if you're a real Cubs fan, you probably don't like the Reds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's interesting to just kind of see how different rooting interests come up. The latest addition for me was probably football, uh, but I do enjoy uh, watching the Colts as much as that is possible post Peyton Manning. And I also grew up with uh, an affinity for college basketball because I think if I'm remembering right, you and I did talk about this uh, going back to the Notre Dame basketball point. You were at the five-overtime game against Louisville, yeah. right? Oh, goodness. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching the highlights of that the, the day after and just going, holy smokes, it was a barn burner. I was pretty young. I had a lot of fun. I mean, it was really insane going to, but now I can grasp how insane that was. I didn't have that full grasp of it then, but, I mean, it was still really crazy to be a part of, yeah. And that Talk about perspective. That's another thing, just growing up right next to Notre Dame. I mean, within walking distance. I mean, being that close to the Golden Dome, too, it's always crazy seeing pictures. Like, people take pictures of the Golden Dome, and you just, like, you'd see it every day. So you're like, it's just the Golden Dome. But, I mean, it's so cool when you, you know, stop and think about it. It's interesting just watching the landscape change. And this is where we can kind of look at sports through that broader pop cultural lens. Caleb and I have talked about the fact that we should probably at some point just start a sports podcast. Just thinking about how when you're growing up, It's like, oh, you're living at home, your parents have cable, the game is on, you watch the game while you're at home. It's a little different following a team as you're growing up, getting into college, post-college, how you watch the games, what you experience, and then different uh, forms of media. We already uh, touched on, uh, you mentioned uh, documentaries. I I think one of my favorites is probably, and I think it's an ESPN 30 for 30, uh, is Survive in Advance on the 1983 NC State team. Although when it comes to my college basketball rooting interest when I was a kid, thanks to every year our family just doing a drawing, like everybody draws teams on the bracket <laughs> and we see who wins at the end. And I think the first year I won it, I had Duke. So yeah. It might have been like 2001. I would have been like seven. <laughs> but then that set the table. I've been rooting for them ever since. And it's interesting to just kind of see, okay, what are the pieces that we get into now? Because we are very much in the internet age in a way now that we weren't then. And we experience things like Secret Base, or you and I were also talking a little bit about Foolish Baseball and YouTube channels and other uh, organizations that are outside of that 
cable package sports media. Instead, it's kind of, it's, I don't know if organic's the right word, but it kind of feels like it's not coming out of a major workshop or company that's been established for decades. It allows yeah. for newer shops to come up and have different perspectives. And you have someone like John Boyce on Secret Base, like his chart party series. I think he talked about how he tries to keep it PG because he knows it's a great way to learn about statistics. So he knows there are teachers who might play it in a math class. Then you have a series like Dorktown, which we referenced in our last storytelling breakdown episode, which you definitely wouldn't want to necessarily play in a classroom, yeah. but it's still immensely entertaining. And you learn a lot about the game, the people, the numbers. They're able to showcase it in such interesting ways. And that's also because I think we see now we have a generation that's grown up with the sports and is also grown up with the internet and with sports video games at a level of popularity that they weren't in generations past. I mean, around that time in, in 2015, I I mean, I was just so into the game. And I think the off season between 15 and 16, which is when all the hype was for 16, I started watching a YouTuber play MLB The Show and he would play the road to the show on there, which is you create a player and then you get drafted and you start in the minors. And it wasn't, I didn't like it in this past MLB The Show 21. I didn't think it was as good. Because for some reason, they made you start as a two-way player because, I mean, Otani's a big player right now. But and you couldn't but you couldn't not be a two-way player, and you had to at least pitch and hit in some games, and I, I didn't like that. But the mode was, I mean, it's always a lot of people's favorites. I think comparing it to, to other sports games, it's definitely, well, that sort of career mode where you're a player yourself, is it's definitely up there as one of the best. I mean, I was so into baseball, so I got into that game, and I would watch, I think his channel name was Gold Glove Let's Plays. He was hilarious too, and he would just play Road to the Show, and I would watch it, and I was I would love it. I mean, all of his videos were like an hour, 50, 40 minutes long, and I would just sit there and watch every single one of them. Just a broad gaming experience for myself. I didn't grow up with the newest thing. I used to play an old PS2 that we had. I mainly played Jack and Daxter with my sister. Never was really on top of all the PS3 games because I was just playing the PS2. Back in around 2016, I got a PS3 because it was a lot cheaper than the PS4, and I just wanted to play the show because I had been watching that guy. So I got it, and I played a lot of Road to the Show. And then kind of after I got that, I got more into franchise mode. At that point, I think the online for MLB The Show 16 was kind of dead at that point. I just mainly played franchise mode, and I would sit there and play all nine innings of all 162 games. And I mean, obviously, I played as the Cubs, and they had all the stars on that team, because that was the year that they won the World Series. So all those guys were on the team, and they were all like top overalls. I didn't get a new gaming system literally until summer of last year. I got the new Xbox. That was actually the first year that they put MLB The Show on Xbox, because it was always PlayStation exclusive. It was a big transition going from MLB 16 to MLB 21 but I've really loved it. Now I mainly just play franchise. I've figured out a better solution to to playing that mode, which is I instead of playing all nine innings, throwing every single pitch and playing every single at bat, I just um, player lock as, as one player every game, and I kind of switch the position every game. So I'm still a part of the team, but I still kind of have to like rely on my team to do good. But, I mean, it's really fun just trying to make like strategic trades and – signing free agents and I mean it's it's tough when you're not playing on like an 
easy difficulty or like playing every single at bat and I mean it's pretty tough to win the World Series if you're kind of relying on your team to do it yourself but also being a part of the team too playing as one player they announced the uh MLB the show 22 that's coming out April 5th I think and a lot of people who are franchise players like myself are kind of upset because the mode's been kind of neglected like they they focus a lot more on the online stuff you know where you collect players cards and kind of build an ultimate team together and then play against other people online which is fun I've played it but it's just not as fun to me as franchise they kind of release their live stream schedule for the next the show and franchise wasn't even on it like they're not even going to talk about new features at all for the game so my hope is that maybe they're just holding off for this year and then for 23 they're going to maybe try to revamp it that's how all those games started out in the first place was the franchise mode there's a couple things i want to speak to in there on the video game side of it because that was one aspect i know of what we saw uh, just recently at the end of 2021 uh, with the Fox All Madden documentary and then when John Madden passed away they were talking about the fact that okay for people who missed him as a coach and then for younger people who missed him as a broadcaster they would know Madden from the video games and just to what extent you have entire generations of fans and of players that are coming up and these games are a part of their their formative years and what got them into the sport in the first place and you have people like obviously speaking as a Colts fan like T.Y. Hilton playing as the Colts before he was one day on the Colts (laughs) or uh, so I think it was Lamar Jackson talking about playing as Michael Vick and you have also something like the fumble dimension on secret base where they do all sorts of crazy stuff with sports video games whether it's testing if it's better to have one player just stay still in Rocket League or whether a team <laughs> of entirely Shohei Otani's can win the World Series. <laughs> I watched the first episode. I haven't been following. You need to watch the playoffs. Yeah. It was so well done. I mean, those guys are yeah so funny in the things they come up with for that series. It's always so entertaining. Even though I, I think I grew up with an even more distanced gaming childhood than you did. We didn't really have the consoles growing up. I just played them at my friend's house. And then mm-hmm. often that was usually going to take the form of something on the Wii or like Star Wars Battlefront, sports games weren't really uh, a part of my childhood. That's an interest that kind of got a resurgence in my adult life more than anything. Circling back to kind of the pop culture angle, and this is what just kind of blows my mind when you look back at the 2015 and the 2016 Cubs. What blows my mind is you have the movie Back to the Future and Mm -hmm. the whole thing with Marty showing up in the year 2015 and seeing Cubs win World Series and the day he goes back to ended up being the night they got eliminated by the Mets in the NLCS. <laughs> and then they yeah. do win it the following year. I remember that was a big thing on that. Yeah, because they were in the playoffs and killing it. And everybody was like, they, they predicted this. <laughs> <laughs> well, because they took out the Pirates and the Cardinals. Like, weren't they the third best team in the division? And then they wound up being the second best team in their league? I mean, that was an insane postseason. Yeah. Well, it's it's crazy thinking about the that division now. It's kind of like one of the weakest divisions in but that year, three teams in that division were in the playoffs. Oh, yeah. And they all played each other right away. Yeah, I know. I actually just saw on Twitter uh, just a random clip of that Kyle Schwarber home run in the wild card game against the Pirates. And just, man, that's definitely that was one of the best home runs I've ever watched. Steve Mullaney, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating. 
Subscribe and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community. Check out the SB blog, past episodes, reach out, leave a comment, send a message, especially for the spotlights. We reach out to friends and people in our various social orbits for episode and spotlight content, but it's so cool when you come to us too. You can find Storytelling Breakdown on Facebook and Instagram. Reach out to our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. You can support our team on Patreon. There are new projects in the works for 2022 and beyond. Our team is going to be creating content that will be Patreon-exclusive and not necessarily limited to the podcast medium. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. SP Wayne Shout Productions Wayne Shout